The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. morning. Uh, this morning we are returning to our study in the book of Colossians, so please turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Uh, today we'll be looking at Colossians chapter 3 verse 18 all the way through to chapter 4 uh, verse 1, and the truths that we're going to uh, look at today are among the most controversial in Scripture. So if you like controversy, you came on the right day. Uh, They are often dealt with, these truths, in extremes. Uh, They're either ignored uh, as a remnant of a past culture. Sometimes, sadly, they're used, uh, even amongst Christians, as a weapon of power of men over women. Or in the case of slavery, uh, they're used as an argument against Christianity. Uh, Now, in our passage this morning, we find instructions given by Paul that govern the life of the home. And in the ancient world, uh, the family was foundational to society, and the family was often not simply mother, father, and children. It included extended family, and sometimes for wealthier people, the household also included slaves. And the New Testament writers often made a point of giving instructions to the members of the household. Uh, Paul gave these instructions in several of his letters, not just here in Colossians, but uh, in Ephesians, chapters 5 and 6, in uh, Titus, uh, chapter 2, and elsewhere. Peter highlights these same things in the book of 1 Peter. Now, the big point of this is not all the specifics of how we relate to each other in the household, although that is important. The big point of this passage this morning is that Christ touches all of life, including the home, and especially the home. And the goal of these instructions is not merely a happy home, although that may well be a desirable byproduct. The goal is the glory of God, the glory of God. There is a clear progression, even though we'll be starting in verse 18, there's a clear progression from chapter 3, verse 1, all the way through to chapter 4, verse 6. We grow in Christ by seeking him and setting our minds on him. Uh, We set our minds on Christ by putting off what is earthly in us and putting on godliness. Uh, Having individually set our minds on Christ, we then love the family of God walking in patience and forgiveness toward one another, working toward unity with one another, building each up, each other up in the faith. Uh, that instruction is what has come before what we're going to look at 
this morning. And all of that culminated in verses 16 and 17, which we looked at last time. Uh, Let's read that, verses 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The command here is to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And that, of course, refers to the word of God, the revelation that Christ brought into the world through the Holy Spirit. And that, of course, is the Bible. Uh, Dwell means to live in or to be at home. So Paul, in these two verses, he's calling upon believers to let the word take up residence and be at home in their lives. And not just a little bit, but richly, abundantly, extravagantly so. The implication here is that the truth of the scriptures should permeate every aspect of the believer's life and govern every thought, every word, every deed, every attitude, and every motive. Now, what I pointed out last time, and I want to remind you of again this morning, is that to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, that is identical to being filled with the Spirit as described in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. And I say that because the passages that follow each of those commands, the command to be filled with the Spirit in Ephesians and the command to to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly in Colossians, what follows both of those commands are very similar. Uh, In fact, Colossians 3, verse 18 to chapter 4, verse 1, which is our passage this morning, is pretty much a parallel passage in brief to Ephesians 5, verse 19, through chapter 6, verse 9. And we're not going to look at at the two passages side by side, but the result of being filled with the Holy Spirit, the results of that given in Ephesians 5, is the same as the result of letting the Word dwell in one's life richly given here in Colossians 3. In other words, being filled with the Spirit and being filled with the Word, we can say, are the same spiritual reality viewed from two sides. The point is this, to be filled with the Spirit is to be controlled by the Word. To be filled with the Spirit is to be controlled by the Word. And to have the Word dwelling richly in us is to be controlled by the Spirit. The bigger point here is this, to be filled with the Spirit is not some mystical experience, it's not some infusion of power that we need to wait for before we can obey what Paul is commanding in the verses that follow, the verses we're going to look at this morning. It has nothing to do with speaking in tongues or anything like that. To be filled simply means to be controlled. To be filled with the Spirit means to be controlled by the Spirit. And we are controlled by the Holy Spirit as we yield to Him in obedience to His Word. As we read it, as we study it, as we live it. Hearing it, handling it, hiding it, and holding it fast. In the Spirit and the Word, church, in the Spirit and the Word, we have every resource we need to do what God calls us to do and to live how He calls us to live. And the simplest, most basic rule or principle for for living the Christian life is this. Verse 17, which we just read, do everything, whether in word or deed, do everything, whether in word or deed, in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
What does it mean to do everything in the name of Jesus? Well, it means several things, but most basically, it means to act consistently with who he is and what he wants. It also includes the motive of bringing glory to God, because Paul expressed the same thought in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, with these words, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And as Paul reminds us here in Colossians 3, verse 17, this is always to be done without reluctance, without legalistic duty, but with the giving of thanks to God the Father through him, through Christ. We must never forget that the goal of the Christian life is Christ-likeness to the glory of God. So with that in mind, having been seekers of things above, having set our minds on things above by putting off and putting on, having loved the brethren and letting the word of God dwell in us richly, according to today's text, which we're going to read in a moment, we love our families. We love those closest to us. That's the instruction of our text this morning, starting in Colossians 3.18. That's the outworking of the spirit-filled, word-filled life. And then we see in the last section, chapter 4, verses 3 through 6, which we'll look at next time we return to the book of Colossians, we're called to love the lost. So it's a very interesting progression, starting in Colossians 3, verse 1, and, and going all the way through to Colossians 4, verse 6. And what all of this means for us, as we turn to our passage this morning, starting in Colossians 3.18, is that we do not, we must not approach this passage, this very practical passage, just filled with practical instruction, in any kind of legalistic sense whatsoever. If all we take from it is that, well, I'm supposed to be a better husband, I'm supposed to be a better wife. We're supposed to be better parents or better workers or better employers or better bosses. Well, we better try harder to do this. If that's all we take from this, we're defeated before we even start. This instruction is rooted firmly in the grace and the power of God. And when we come to study it and apply it and obey it, we come resting in and depending upon that grace and that power. We come with the wonderful purpose of glorifying God and giving him thanks and praise. And we come with our eyes fixed on Christ, our perfect pattern, our perfect example. If all we do is try harder because we want a happier home. Hey, who doesn't want a happier home, right? Oh, this is how I get a happier home. All right, I'll try to do these things. If, if that's all we do, then all of our attempts at application and obedience in these areas will be sub-Christian, sub-biblical uh, at best. So let's look at this passage today to see what it says about the Christian life at home. And from the beginning, we need to put out of our minds what our culture has said and is saying about the family. The family in the Bible is not represented by the mix of peoples and groupings we have in our culture uh, today. The Bible picture of the family is one of husband, wife, and children, and in some cases, the extended family. And each is called to this, sacrificial love in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word to us this morning. 
Your word is truth and your word is life. Your word is, is, is wisdom and sanctification. Uh, as we uh, come under the control of your Holy Spirit and, and obey your word, we trust that you will be glorified uh, in each and every one of our lives, our lives individually, our lives corporately as a church, uh, our lives as individual families and, and, and homes, Father God. Uh, be pleased uh, to teach us this morning by your Holy Spirit. Uh, may we, each and every one of us here, have eyes to see and ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to your church this morning through your word. May we have minds to understand it and hearts to obey. Uh, may we be uh, doers of your word today, not hearers only, deceiving our own selves. And may we bring you uh, glory and honor. Have your way in this service, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, as we look to God's word, please know that what the Bible says about the family is not acceptable to our culture. Uh, but, and I hope this encourages you, the greatest impact Christianity has had in history seems to be when it has been least acceptable to the culture. Uh, and the unacceptable to the culture things <laughs> starts right away in this passage with the very first verse, Colossians 3, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. This is why we preach straight through books of the Bible. It forces us to face the hard issues. The idea of wives submitting to husbands, as unpopular as that might be, in our sinful, fallen culture today, is all through the New Testament. But it is often laughed off in our culture. You know, a good test of whether we are shaped by our culture or by Scripture is whether we believe commands like this are to be followed. Now, before we get into the specifics of what this means, we also need to note here that the relationship that is highlighted is the relationship of husband and wife. In Scripture, a wife is always a woman, a husband is always a man, and marriage is always and only between a man and a woman. Um, even though polygamy and homosexuality were known in Bible times, and some people in the Bible had more than one wife, the ethical instructions of the New Testament always center on one man and one woman. So there's no place in the Bible where God endorses the kinds of relationships that our culture has endorsed uh, in recent years. Sadly, walking outside of God's established pattern brings great harm to individuals and to cultures, as we are witnessing in our nation today. But those outside of Christ will naturally act like those outside of Christ. Our text is not addressing those individuals this morning, nor are those individuals my concern this morning. I am much more concerned today with professing Christians who bow to culture or who deny the clear teaching of Scripture because it's not what they want to hear. 
Uh, now, these household instructions are pretty simple, but at the same time, they are difficult because they don't satisfy our fleshly desires. In our flesh, we are naturally selfish. We will seek the easy way, the comfortable way, the way that is least demanding. So when Paul comes to us here and says, wives, submit to your husbands, we need to understand that though it's, it's, it's not easy, it is right. It is right. Now notice, this is wives to your husbands. Wives, submit to your husbands. Not women to men or women to someone else's husband. This word submit, it gets a bad rap, unfortunately, as if it means being a doormat. We know that it doesn't mean that. To submit doesn't make you automatically less than the one you submit to. As submission, biblically speaking, is a voluntary act of the will. It's not an explanation of one's status. The Greek word for submit means that you put yourself under another's authority or leadership. Uh, it's used in a lot of contexts in the Bible. We are to submit to governing authorities in Romans 13 and 1 Peter. Uh, we see most significantly in Luke chapter 2 that Jesus, as a child, submitted to his parents. Now, he was God in the flesh. He was God in the flesh when he was conceived in the womb. He was God in the flesh when he was a baby in the manger. He was God in the flesh as a young man, as a teenager. He was God in the flesh throughout his earthly life. He was God in the flesh, yet he submitted to his parents. Significantly, within the Godhead, within the Trinity, as God the Son, he submits to God the Father, but is in no way inferior to him, to the Father in his deity, right? So this makes it clear that submission has nothing to do with being inferior or less than. Uh, again, his submission, Christ's submission, didn't make him inferior to his parents. It showed that he was obedient to the fifth commandment, to honor one's parents. In the same way, a wife's submission to the husband is not some way for, for men to have power over women. It is something that is fitting in the Lord. I mean, we have God's own commentary on it in his word. It is fitting in the Lord. It is right and it is good. And we need not shy away from it. We need not explain it away. We dare not explain it away. But we do need to understand it properly. Uh, the Bible makes it clear that women and men were created in God's image and that they have equal worth in the kingdom of God. That's not really the issue. Uh, the Bible also makes it clear that though equal and that though in Christ there is no male nor female, in terms of, of our, again, our essence, our being, um, the Bible makes it clear that wives should submit to their husbands. It is significant that the word submit is used rather than the word obey. Submission is not first and foremost following the directives of the husband, although it can include that. It is first a sacrificial and voluntary thing intended to honor God as fitting in the Lord. It really starts as an attitude. Submission always begins as an attitude of the heart. Uh, and not so much even as an expression of, of a wife's trust of her husband. I, I don't think you can find anywhere in the Bible where God commands wives, trust your husband. <laughs> 
Wives, who are you trusting when you submit to your husband? The Lord. It's an expression of trust in the Lord. It's an, it's a, it's an expression of obedience to God. It's an attitude that includes um, uh, it's obedience to the Lord. It's an attitude that includes reverence. It's an attitude that includes loyalty. Uh, it's an attitude uh, uh, that includes um, being a helpmeet. You know, dedicating yourself to helping your husband to fulfill his full potential in the Lord, uh, as uh, so that what he's called to do, which is to be the the provider and the protector, uh, the shepherd of the home, uh, he will be able to do. Uh, it begins as an attitude uh, of voluntary submission and honor in the Lord, and it's fitting in the Lord. And men are not the masters of women. Uh, That's not what this is about. Rather, husbands are to be caretakers of their families. And wives are to submit to the roles that God has assigned. You know, I I wasn't going to say this, but I'll say it because maybe some of you don't know this. There There are two thoughts about this within evangelical Christianity. Two groups who view these passages quite differently. And that would include passages which call for male leadership in the church. That would be passages that call for a wife's submission to the husband. There are uh, complementarians and egalitarians. Okay? The complementarian view is what uh, I espouse and Pastor Steve, Pastor Mike, Pastor Caleb, this church. In the complementarian view, men and women complement each other, though equal before God. We recognize what the scripture says. In Christ, there's no male nor female, right? Though equal before God, men and women have been given different functions or roles. And this is necessary for society to function, for the home to function, for the church to function. Okay, God has assigned uh, different roles. The egalitarian view says, no, 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 not only are men and, equal, men and women equal before God, you know, in Christ and in their, in their, in their being, but they are equal in their functions. There are no, there's no distinction of functions. Uh, whatever a man is called to do by God, a woman can be called to do, and whatever a woman is called to be by God, a man can be called to do. Uh, I'm sorry, but that's not, you can, that's not the biblical view. And in trusting Christ and in trusting God, and his righteousness, and his goodness, and his sovereignty, uh, we submit ourselves to the functions that he has assigned to us. It's not that one is better than the other, or one is more important than the other. God has called men to loving leadership in the home and the church, and he's, and husbands to loving leadership in the home, and he's called wives uh, to humble submission in the homes. And there's all sorts of ways that works out. We don't have time to go into that this morning. We can, I mean, entire books have just been written on this, <laughs> this, this one idea. Countless sermons. We're doing more of an overview, overview this morning going through this passage. But we need to understand that, okay? Um, men, husbands are to be the caretakers of their families, and wives are to submit to the roles God has assigned. The principle, the fitting thing in the Lord is wives who graciously submit to their husbands. Now, along with this, we have verse 19. 
Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And in the parallel passage in Ephesians 5, it, it's, it, it lays an even heavier burden on the husband. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. How did he give himself for it? He laid down his life for the church. Husbands are called to love their wives to such an extent that they will lay down their lives. Now, that doesn't mean take a bullet for your wife if you're out on the street in a mug. Well, it could mean that, but that's the easy way out. <laughs> think about it. Just think about it. I really believe, I think we could say the same thing about God. I think it's, for most of us, it would be easier to take a bullet in the head. Renounce Christ or die. I'm not renouncing Christ, and they shoot you dead on the street. Then it is to every single day, lay down your life. Every single day, deny yourself. Every single day, uh, submit yourself and put to death your desires. Put to death uh, your sinful inclinations and things that you want to do and submit your life and your will to another. Isn't that true? So that's what I mean. It's not, yes, it could include physically dying for your family, uh, but that's, that's not what it means. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself for it. Uh, you're called to lay down your life every day uh, and to um, put your wife's needs ahead of your own. And again, if we're not filled with the Spirit, that is a very difficult thing to do because our flesh is so selfish and it rails against that kind of sacrifice. It rails against uh, that kind of selflessness and unselfishness. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So Paul now turns to the husbands. And the call to a husband is to love his wife, not to be harsh with her, and again, we see these very same callings all through the New Testament, most notably, again, in Paul's longer passage about marriage in Ephesians 5. Wives submit, husbands love. That doesn't mean, wives, you don't have to love your husband. <laughs> Obviously, uh, you do, and you, we're called to love one another. But husbands are given a very special responsibility here to love their wives uh, in, in the most Christ-like way imaginable. Uh, and in this way, both husband and wife sacrificially serve one another. The focus of this passage is not, ki not some kind of, you know, spiritual organizational chart. Husbands, wives, children. That, that's, that's not what it's really about. I mean, it's really about being caught up in Christ. He is our treasure. He is everything to us. So everything in our lives is different because of that, including our home life. Husbands are not tyrants getting their wives to do their bidding. Husbands are not out there pulling the leadership card to get their way. Husbands are not ruled by anger and harshness and a desire to have what they want when they want it. Oh, some do that, even some Christian men. But that's not what this is about. Husbands, godly husbands, spirit-filled, word-filled husbands love. Husbands give of themselves out of love for their wife and their children. Husbands are not harsh. Are you a harsh husband this morning? And you know if you are. 
If not, ask your wife. You know if you are. Well, today would be a good day to repent because that harshness does not reflect Jesus. If you have a wife or children that are afraid, you know, to, to interact with you because they fear you're going to fly off the handle, you need to repent because you are not loving them. You're damaging them. Are you overly critical of your wife, demanding that she conform to your expectations? You need to repent because you're not fulfilling the God-given calling of marriage. Or maybe you've just dropped out of family life altogether. You know, you're worn out by work, you're stressed out, so you just, you know, veg out in front of the television night after night, never help your wife, never talk to your kids. Husbands, today is a new day. You can start again. But I want to say to you that if you're not seeking the things above, setting your mind on the things above, letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly, you will never truly change. You'll go back to the same old patterns eventually. Reform never works in any lasting way. Because Christ didn't come to reform. Christ came to transform. Amen? He came to transform. And as you set your mind on him day by day and you put your focus on him in every area of your life and you treasure him above all things, you will begin to see his transforming power in you. You will begin to see day by day God changing you. You will begin to see the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience, rather than the fruit of the flesh, anger, harshness, stress, impatience. This is exactly what we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. When Paul speaks there of our life in Christ, he says, He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. So we see that Christ died and was raised, and when we trust him, we don't live for ourselves any longer. We live for him. And we don't regard people any longer according to the flesh. What does it mean to regard others according to the flesh? Well, we need to relate it to what, came before that, those who live in Christ no longer live for themselves. So to regard people according to the flesh must mean that in some way we use people to live for ourselves. But now in Christ, we're not to do that anymore. We don't relate to people to get things from them. We relate to give because we have all we need in Christ. And of course, there, there, there is still a giving in receiving in relationships, but it is no longer about using people. It's no longer about us. It's about Christ. It's about Christ. So when we keep this view in mind, the commands about marriage make sense. Husbands and wives live for the benefit of one another. Don't be consumed with your rights. Don't keep score. Focus on the good you can give rather than what you can get. That is a happy marriage. And more importantly, husbands and wives that relate to each other in this submission and love model display the relationship of Christ and his church. And they bring glory to God. Next, Paul turns to the children. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. 
Now notice, when we get to the children, the command is obedience rather than submission. There's a difference in the relationship of husband and wife and the relationship between parents and children. Parents are to be obeyed. And notice it says, in everything. Now, obviously that doesn't mean that children should obey parents in things that violate the word of God, but otherwise children should obey parents. Why? Because this pleases the Lord. Very explicit statement. It pleases the Lord. As a wife's submission is fitting in the Lord, so children's obedience is pleasing to the Lord. Why does a child's obedience please the Lord? Why does one of the Ten Commandments, the Fifth Commandment, relate to honoring one's father and mother? Because obedience in general is dear, very dear to the heart of God. He desires what? Obedience rather than sacrifice, right? Obedience is very dear to the heart of God. And the Lord is pleased with the obedience of children in particular. Because a child who is obedient, a child whose parents are raising him or her in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, a, a child whose parents are training that child to obey. That child is learning the practice of obedience. They are, they are learning to obey God, ultimately, and eventually, by obeying their parents. And the relationship of obedience to parents, the relationship of obedience to parents, models the life of obedience that we are to live before God. But this is not some, you know, raw white-knuckle obedience, you know. I don't really want to obey. I might be sta- sitting down on the inside, but on, on the outside, but on the inside I'm still standing, right? That kind of obedience, it's not that. Having been saved by grace, we obey God by the power of the Spirit. And not to earn favor with God, but as a response to the love of God. And so the command to children to be obedient also comes with a word to the fathers. Verse 21, fathers... Do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. I don't know for sure why fathers are singled out here, but it may be because they were more likely in Paul's day to be harsh, or it may be because he views the father as having a special responsibility before God to guard his his children's hearts. Or Paul may be emphasizing the father's role of leadership in the home regardless of the reason What we should see here is that Paul is clear that it is not only children who have the responsibility to obey, it is also fathers who have the responsibility to not provoke. And what we have here is a relationship, just as there is a relationship between Christ and the church, and just as there is a relationship between husband and wife, so there is a relationship between parents and children. And even this relationship is to be a matter of mutual self-giving love. Children obey. And parents do not provoke their children. So we don't, we don't push their buttons purposely to irritate them. Lay demands on them we wouldn't put on anybody else. Fathers, if you find yourself giving grace to others, pe- other people's children, but no grace to your own children, you need to change. Yes, children should obey parents, but we also must acknowledge that like us, children will fall short. Amen? How we handle them when we fall short is very important. It can push them away from us, and and, and worse, it can push them away from the Lord, or it can draw them near. I don't think that as parents, and especially as fathers, we give enough thought and attention to this command. 
And let me say this. We don't have time to, to develop this now, but I would encourage you to, to go through the Bible. And uh, there are two types of commandments in the Bible. You have negative commands and positive commands. The positive commands are what we are commanded to do. Okay? The negative commands are what we are forbidden to do. Right? Thou, there are thou shalt and there are thou shalt not. Right? Experience shows us that, at least temporally, there seem to be far worse consequences when we disobey the negative commands as opposed to disobeying the positive commands. Now, I'm not saying go home and disobey all the positive commands. No, there's consequences there too. But the consequences really do seem more severe. When God says, do not do something, and we do it, Things seem to be worse, that when he says, do something, and we don't. And this is one of those commands where there are very severe consequences, tragic consequences, heartbreaking consequences, uh, when the command is disobeyed and when fathers do, in fact, provoke their children. Um, When we as parents, and especially as fathers, violate this command, the consequences can be severe in terms of the damage we do to our children, especially the damage we do to their relationship with the Lord. I heard a statistic once. I don't know if it's true. At least I don't know if the number is exactly correct, but I believe the underlying principle is true, so I'm going to give it to you. I heard that 95% of delinquents, and I don't even know if that term is used anymore, uh, remember the term juvenile delinquent, right? So we'll just say 95% of troubled youths, troubled youth, the kind that rebel, get involved with breaking the law, drugs, wrong friends, maybe even depression and suicidal thoughts and so on. 95% of troubled youth had an angry father. Not 95% of angry fathers have that rebellious youth, but take the whole universe of troubled youth and someone said 95% of those uh, troubled young people had an angry father. Now, again, I don't know if that number is accurate, but what is true is that there is a common denominator among troubled youth. The common denominator among young, among troubled youth is an angry father, a harsh father, an unloving father. And this makes perfect sense in light of the instruction of this verse, verse 21, right? I mean, there's a reason God tells us not to provoke our children. And how do we provoke them? We provoke them. Now, one thought is, well, we provoke them when, we, when we're overprotective. When we try to protect them from the... No, that's not it. That, that's, that's not it. You don't lose your child's heart because you shelter them. Our children need to be sheltered from this world until they're ready to go out into this world. Amen? Okay? That's not it. Fathers provoke their children. Fathers lose their, their child's heart when they deal with their children in an angry manner, in a harsh manner, in an unloving manner, an inconsistent manner in their own Christian walk. All of these things contribute. If you're sheltering your children from the world, you don't let them have a television, you don't let them have uh, their own cell phone and their own laptop and all of those things and 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 uh you watch over who their friends are if you do that in a loving gentle kind well that's not going to drive them away 
we drive them away through our own sinfulness, through our own anger, our own harshness, unkindness, impatience, and so on. So we need to be very careful in making sure we are obedient to this command and that we are not provoking our children and causing them to lose heart. Now, that doesn't mean we coddle them. doesn't mean we give in to their whiny demands and their manipulation when they don't get their way and they scream, you don't love me. Right? You're right. Right now, I don't love you. No. <laughs> oh, come on. Who, does, who hasn't felt like saying that? Right? But we need to be careful. And, 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 and no, we don't coddle them. What it does mean, though, is that we are to deal with our children in a loving way with kindness and gentleness and patience rather than in a selfish, unloving way with anger and harshness and unkindness and impatience. And we also need to be careful not to be overly critical, giving them the impression that they can never do anything right or that they can never please us. You know, their struggles are heart issues. And all the yelling and screaming in the world isn't going to change their heart. We need to shepherd the hearts of our children. And we need to do so in a Christ-like, as Christ-like a manner as possible. And this also applies to being overly critical of children in the church. You know, maybe you see a teenager now and then. Maybe they're not paying attention or they're looking at their cell phone. Okay, don't go over and yell at them. Get to know them. Show them how precious Jesus is to you. There's a reason they're not paying attention. And your yelling isn't going to change their heart. Again, it's a heart issue. So we need to reach out to the hearts of children and teens. And and they need us. Amen? They need us, so we need to be there for them. And don't forget your own children uh, most of all. Now, Paul finishes by pointing to one other relationship we don't often consider. Verse 22, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Now we come to this section, and many people nowadays will say, I'm sorry, I can't be a Christian. I can't believe in your God. I can't believe in your Bible. It endorses slavery. What we have from Paul is not an endorsement of slavery. It's simply a recognition of slavery. Uh, It existed in his day. It was part of the culture of his day. And there was necessary instruction for both slaves and, as we're going to see, for masters. And Paul normally does not oppose the structures of society in his writings. He accepts that there was slavery and that there was a Roman Empire with an emperor controlling that part of the world. And he doesn't actively oppose these things or call for a a revolution, not because he thought they were right and acceptable, but because he knew, listen, he knew that the gospel, if truly believed and applied, would result in a steady and subtle revolution against the oppressive structures of society. And history has proven that Paul was right. Slavery ended 
at least in, in, in the Western world, under the Christian conviction of men like William Wilberforce. There was a Christian basis in much of the early civil rights movement in our country. The very ideas of democracy at the heart of our nation's founding flow in part from Christian principles. The gospel of Jesus Christ, if heard and believed, transforms culture over time. Now, the problem is we don't want to wait. So we tend to get, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody, uh, we tend to get very politically active and we try to bring that transformation about uh, you know, through politics. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be involved in that to some degree, but ultimately it's the gospel of Jesus Christ when heard and believed that can transform culture over time. In the meantime, Paul simply tells those trapped in unjust structures like slavery in his day to live a Christ-exalting life within that structure trusting God to bring change over time. So Paul gives the command to slaves to obey their earthly masters. He uses that word earthly to make it clear that their service to men is temporary. He also gives more encouragement to the slaves than he gives to husbands, wives, children, and parents. Children and parents. He gives commands in each of those cases, but for the slaves, Paul also points to their future inheritance and to the justice that will come to any who mistreat them. So this is a passage of great encouragement. Now, the command is simple on the surface. Obey your earthly masters. But it goes deeper. This obedience should not be simply outward. It should not be to be seen or to please people, but to please God. Slaves are commanded here to work hard for the Lord. The repeated reference to the Lord makes it clear here that God intends to redeem even the brutal work of slavery and move in it so that the slaves can honor God. Each of the relationships that we have talked about today is ultimately about God. And if you divorce this passage from being raised with Christ and seeking him and doing all things to the glory of God, you miss the point. The point of this passage is that the gospel changes all of our relationships so that we look at things from a different point of view. If anyone, think about it, if anyone would be tempted to think their place in life was worthless or that they had no value, it would have been slaves. But Paul comes to them and he elevates them. You have a great inheritance, he says, as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So even slavery has a meaning. The slavery of Paul's day has a meaning in Jesus. Now, it's interesting. In Ephesians 5, where Paul discusses these very same relationships, he gives more attention in his instruction to the uh, instructions to the household. He gives more instructions to the relationship of husband and wife. In Colossians, though, here he spends more time on the slave and master relationship. And the reason for this is probably probably because of Onesimus. Onesimus was one of the people bringing this letter to the Colossians. Onesimus was a runaway slave. He had run away from his master Philemon. And Paul wrote a letter to Philemon urging him to receive Onesimus back into his household as a brother in the Lord. And Paul has words for both of these men in the section of Colossians as he prepares for them to be reunited to one another. He's addressed the slave, and now in chapter 4, verse 1, he ends this section by addressing masters, like Philemon and others who own slaves. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, 
knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Paul is undermining the institution of slavery even by giving commands to the masters. There were general urgings in society in that day for kindness towards slaves, but Paul's words go further than that in, in, in two ways. First, Paul is calling not for kindness, but for justice and fairness. The word for fairness is derived from a Greek word that has to do with things being equal. So this command has to do with justice and equality for slaves. And if this command for justice and fairness is obeyed, where will it eventually lead? It will lead to freedom for slaves. The second unique aspect of Paul's words to masters is that he brings a Christian significance to their slaveholding. Though you own slaves, for now, he makes it clear, you're not the real master. You're not the real authority. You're not the final authority. You have a master in heaven. So take care how you deal with these slaves. You have a master in heaven. You too, he, Paul is letting them know, you are under authority. And again, this reminder subtly undermines the institution of slavery itself. In Christ, the ground is level and all are free because of the grace of God. So don't let anyone intimidate you. Don't let anyone ever tell you that the Bible or Paul or that Christianity endorses slavery. It does not. It most certainly does not. Now, how do we apply Paul's instructions to slaves and masters in the first century to our lives today in the 21st century where the slave-master relationship thankfully no longer exists in our nation? Well, while there isn't a direct one-to-one -one correspondence between the slave-master relationship in the first century and the employee-employer relationship today, even though it feels like it sometimes, even though there isn't that one-to-one -one direct correspondence, nevertheless, I think that Paul's instruction here can be applied most directly to our work. Although these principles may well have application in a variety of contexts and relationships today, and we would do well to take note of them, we can most directly apply what Paul says to masters and slaves. We can apply it in our work relationships, in the relationship between employees and employers. Let's begin by observing how Paul envisions the service that slaves are to render to their masters. Again, they are to obey them in everything, language similar to what we saw in verse 20 with regard to children and their parents. Now, again, it goes without saying, of course, that this assumes the master does not require his servant to sin or to deny Jesus. If your boss on the job, he wants you to do something that would constitute sin, something illegal, deceptive, you, uh, you're not obligated, obviously, uh, to obey that. Now, his work, Paul says, is not to be done by way of eye service. That's an interesting phrase that translates just one word in the Greek Paul has in mind an approach to one's work designed uh, either to attract attention or to avoid punishment or both. You're looking to be seen by the boss. You want him, you know, you want him to see you working. Uh, you want him, you want to avoid, you know, the displeasure of the boss, the wrath of the boss. Uh, maybe he has in mind work discharged only when one's master, one's employer is present and observant. You know, together with the tendency, you know, to just goof off uh, and, and do nothing when he's absent, right? And we've all seen that. We've all been guilty of that at times, and we see it. Um, there was a television commercial years ago, some years ago, 
and it beautifully illustrates what Paul has in mind. It portrayed an office where several employees took advantage of the boss's absence. They played games. They took naps. They generally shirked their responsibilities. And they would receive advance warning of the boss's return to the office because he wore this horribly smelly cologne. And they would smell it, and they would know he was coming. But then... Um, And then when they smelled him coming, they would resume their duties. They would give the impression of having been diligently at work alone. But then, of course, the boss switched to Menin's Skin Bracer. That was what the commercial was for. And he returned unannounced, and he caught them in the act. But that's what Paul means here by I serve. Don't just work when the boss is looking and goof off when he's not. Why? Because you are serving Christ. He says, that's the overriding principle here. No matter what job you have, no matter what your responsibilities are, no matter how much you might like it or dislike it at times, I mean, the banner over all of your work is you are serving Christ. You are serving Christ. And Christians are to fulfill their responsibilities, whatever they may be, and to whomever they are obligated, based on that principle and not pragmatism. We work regardless of who may be present, present, conscious that another eye is upon us. Or as Paul says, you are serving Christ. He is always watching. And whatever wage you may or may not receive from another, from another human, or whatever praise you may or may not receive, or whatever thanks you may or may not receive, remember that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. And it's interesting. Paul said that to slaves. And under Roman law, a slave could not receive an inheritance. Isn't that interesting? But they were living again under a higher law. They were serving Christ. So we labor and we serve and we discharge our obligations ultimately to please Christ and not people. We must avoid a merely perfunctory and mechanical performance and do all things, Paul says, with sincerity of heart. Reverence for the Lord, Paul says, must govern our actions. So even our work is worship. Do you know that? Even our work is worship. And for that reason, we can rightly say there is no such thing as a secular job. There is no such thing as a secular job. And this is true no matter what kind of work you may be engaged in. It might be work on the job. It might be service here in the church. It might be some community or volunteer service that you are doing. You might just be helping out a friend. Whatever it is, and as difficult as it may be, we must labor in God's grace to look beyond mere earthly payment or praise as the motivation for our efforts. There is something inherently spiritual in all that a Christian does, whether that be the digging of a ditch, the preaching of a sermon, the changing of a diaper, It is for Christ that we work. And it is from Christ that the reward will come. Amen? Finally, Paul is quick to point out out that if slaves have duties, so also have masters or employees. So if, 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 if employees have duties, so often, so also do their employers or their bosses. And those employers, those bosses on the job must treat their employees 
their workers justly and fairly, as I've already pointed out. Christ is their master too. Therefore, let them treat their servants with the same consideration, their employees with the same consideration and equity that they themselves hope to receive from the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you are in a position of management, maybe you own your own business, or maybe you work for a company and you have people under you, are you treating them justly and fairly with the same consideration and equity that you yourself hope to receive from the Lord Jesus Christ? So what's the ultimate takeaway from a passage like this? These final verses of our text that seem so irrelevant to conditions in the 21st century. Simply this. All of life, whether in work or family or ministry, be it immensely significant or utterly mundane, all of life is subject to the sovereignty of and governed by the Lordship of Christ and ultimately live to the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. Never forget, Christ Jesus is your master in heaven. Fear the Lord, not man. All you do is ultimately for the Lord. It is he whom you serve. It is from him that your eternal reward is coming. These aren't just principles for slaves and masters in the first century. These are principles for every one of us as we live and work in this world today. Whatever our lot in life, wherever we may live, for whomever we may work, to whomever we owe allegiance, let us never forget, we do it all for Christ. And even if your job or, or life itself makes you feel like a slave at times, in Christ the ground is level and all are free because of the grace of God. But what are we free for? We are free to give ourselves away. We are free because we are fulfilled in Christ. If you are not seeking the things above and setting your mind on things above, you'll burn out and break down. But a slow, steady, persistent, deep understanding of the riches we have in Christ will set you free to love as never before. And Christ will come to transform every area of your life. And this extends to every area of our life. No longer will you be a slave to sexual passions and anger and malice and greed. You will be putting off those things. No longer will you be isolated and disconnected, but you will be brought into the body of believers where there's warmth and compassion, mercy and forgiveness. No longer will your home be a cold place or an angry, angry place or a place of stress, but your home will be touched by the one you are all seeking. Amen? And your whole life will be marked by the presence of Jesus. Not perfectly, but profoundly and deeply. This really can be our life. Church, seek the things above, seek Christ, and watch him change everything. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word to us this morning. We talked about a lot of things this morning, Lord. And I just pray that for each and every one of us here, each and every one of us who name the name of Christ, who call ourselves Christian would have as the greatest desire of our life to bring glory and honor to your name and to do so in, in these just most important areas of our life, that we would bring glory and honor to you in our, in our marriage, we would bring glory and honor to you in our, in our parenting, we would bring glory and honor to you uh, in our work, and we can do that uh, 
by obeying these very clear instructions. But we know we can only obey in the power of the Holy Spirit. We can only obey as we, as we seek you. We can only obey as uh, we are filled, controlled by your Spirit, uh, as we fill ourselves with your word. May we be those spirit-filled, word-filled Christians whose lives begin to look like or continue to look like what we heard described today. And in doing so, may you be glorified and honored and praised. If there be anyone here this morning who does not know you, they've not bowed the knee, They've not called upon your name, Lord Jesus, to be saved. That that they have not come to the Father through you in faith and repentance. I pray, Father, you would open their hearts and minds to hear and believe the gospel and to be saved. And to know that when Christ laid down his life for the church, he did so on the cross as he died for sinners. Taking the sins of everyone who would ever believe in him upon himself and as their substitute taking the wrath of of God his father upon themselves the punishment for those sins that we might not only be forgiven but that we might also be considered righteous that we might be given the very righteousness of Christ himself even as we struggle in this life with sin even as we struggle with disobedience the glory of our salvation is that God declares us to be righteous because Christ who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So as Christ is lifted up in this service, draw all people to yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.